So we're in John chapter 14. If you've got a bulletin this morning in there, you'll find an outline that has today's sermon title on it called Another Helper. We're in John 14 verses 15 through 17. John 14 verses 15 through 17. Again, the title is Another Helper. Here's what the Apostle John writes. If you love me, speaking obviously for Jesus is speaking here, says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Father, we need your help this morning as we dive back into the Gospel of John. We pray that you would open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear the beautiful encouragement and challenge from the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be reminded this morning that we have another helper who dwells within us to empower us and to enable us to follow in your footsteps. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, while we were in Georgia, a little bit on our extended summer vacation this year, one of the things that I wanted to do was to take our family to Chick-fil-A corporate headquarters. I'm a big fan of Chick-fil-A. It started right there in Georgia. I've been there a few times, but I've never been able to take my whole family. And so I have a niece who works there, as well as some other employees that go to my parents' church. And so we had the opportunity to go visit Chick-fil-A. And it's an incredible, uh, incredible office. First of all, on the ground floor, they have a lot of collector cars that are like in mint condition to include also one of the original Batmobiles. So that's kind of cool. Also, there's this amazing museum that just kind of tells the whole history behind Chick-fil-A. It's really cool just to kind of walk through it and learn a little bit more about how Chick-fil-A started back in 1946. And then all of a sudden, Truett Cathy learned how to invent the chicken sandwich. That's what he says. We didn't invent the chicken, just the chicken sandwich. All right. Not only that, but there are some free espresso machines where you can get all the coffee you want. You can make lattes, you can make cappuccinos. It's just very hospitable. They even give away those little cows that say, eat more chicken. There you go. That's our visit to Chick-fil-A. But the most amazing thing about the Chick-fil-A headquarters is they give out free lunch to all their employees and all their employees' friends. And I'm a friend of Chick-fil-A employees. So we show up for lunch, and it's all the chicken you want. They have many other accessory foods as well, also including their special handcrafted milkshakes. I mean, we had a blast. My kids thought they had died and gone to heaven. They're convinced Chick-fil-A is going to be served in heaven. I mean, it's a really amazing store, isn't it? It's one of the most dominant brands of fast foods in the world. It's actually number three, the third largest in the U.S. by sales behind McDonald's and Starbucks. It grows every year at enormous rates, last year by 16.7% to reach a total of $10.5 billion dollars. Now, during our tour, we were able to go into Truett Cathy's office, who was the founder of the company, and our guide explained to us how the family business was passed down from Truett Cathy to the new CEO, as of 2003, I think it was, his son, Dan. And in order for Dan to receive the family business, he had to sign a covenant. 
And as true it was preparing to die, he wrote out this covenant that included three things that his son had to do in order to accept the company in good faith. Number one, Truett told Dan that he could never have Chick-fil-A be open on Sundays. Number two, you must keep the company private and not go public so we're not influenced by external shareholders. And number three, we want you to continue in philanthropic and mission work. There's actually two foundations that Chick-fil-A has, and their job of those foundations is just to give away as much money as they can. All the money Chick-fil-A gives, they just give it away. Well, not all of it, but they give away tons and tons of it, right? So it's pretty, pretty cool to see how this family covenant is something that Dan has kept, these three promises, and God has blessed in a way that business, and business has really never been better. Well, why do I tell you all of this this morning? Well, our study in the Gospel of John, we've been looking at Jesus' last words that he wants to pass on to his disciples. In a sense, he wants the family business to continue. Now, the family business is the gospel, the new covenant, the preaching of Jesus, and Jesus wants to assure his disciples will carry on the gospel message. And in his last words, we're realizing here in this what we call the upper room discourse, John chapter 13 through 17, these five or six chapters are really taking place only about 12 to 18 hours before Jesus' death and the crucifixion. And so Jesus wants to gather his disciples together and to give them some important instruction. Like one of his instructions would have been, for sure, I want you to always be open on Sunday. So that's important, right? Chick-fil-A is going to always be closed on Sunday, but we're supposed to always be open, right? And Jesus continues to, to teach them all kinds of things that we're looking at, John 13, 14, and 15. One of the things that Jesus already taught them was just the example of service and the example of sacrifice when he washed the disciples' feet, a task usually reserved for the most menial uh, a slave. And by this simple act, Jesus showed us that love is sacrifice and love is service. And he went on to explain that the, unless the Lamb of God cleanses a person from their sin, that person could never be clean. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. So one of the important things he teaches his disciples is about service leadership. Also, during that upper room discourse takes place the Last Supper, where Jesus gave warning about how Judas would betray him. In fact, Jesus even instructed Judas to leave and go quickly to do what it is that he had to do, which is a reminder to us that God's sovereign plan is at work. Jesus is showing us that nothing catches him by surprise. He knows all things, and he ordains all things, and everything that he does is going to be bring glory to his name as his plan is carried out. Now, Jesus then broke bread with his disciples as he inaugurated the Lord's Supper. This institution of the new covenant in his blood reminds us that we can only be saved by Christ's sacrifice. The crucifixion, gruesome and as horrifying as it was, is also the most beautiful single act of love ever performed. And we remember this act each time that we as Christians observe the Lord's table in communion. We think about the body of Christ and the blood that was shed for us. Now, Jesus also gave his disciples some important last-minute instructions. And one instruction is that they were to love 
one another. Do you remember John 13, 34, and 35? Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus also gives unparalleled encouragement as he tells his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them. You remember John 14, verse 3? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so as we continue our study of the upper room discourse, I want us to look at some additional instruction and encouragement from the lips of Jesus again this morning. The instruction and encouragement that we will hear today is for all believers. This is for every blood-bought child of God. This is for every Christian who has been born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And these words are to challenge us and to encourage us this morning. And I want to just give you two truths this morning that are going to be a challenge and encouragement. Number one, you have a great responsibility. And then number two, you have a great helper. Let's start off with that first one. You have a great responsibility. Your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, is what is love? What is love? Notice there in verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me. So let's just talk for a moment about this word love. This is the first time the word love is used here in chapter 14. In chapter 13, we were exhorted to love one another. That is the very way that all people will know that you're a disciple of Christ, Jesus said, if you have love for one another. And now Jesus is saying, not only are we to have love for one another, but you're to have love for me. And the way that you will love me, according to verse 15, is by obeying me. It's by keeping my commandments. Now, the first part, again, in verse 15, if you love me, the word love, as you may have already guessed, is that word agape. And according to Greek lexicons like BDAG, agape has three different meanings, which I believe are all somewhat related. It means, number one, to have a warm regard for and interest in one another to cherish or have affection for. Number two, it also means to have a high esteem for or satisfaction with or to take pleasure in. Number three, it means to practice or express love to prove one's love. Now, if you put all three of those together, here's what I'm getting. I am so in love with you and I cherish you so much that I get pleasure in proving my love to you. Or to say it even more simply, I take great pleasure in proving my love for you. And the way that we prove our love for Jesus, he tells us in verse 15, is by keeping his commandments. If we're going to say, I agape you, I cherish you, I want to spend time with you, I'm, I'm devoted to you, then the best way we can express that in this verse is by keeping his commandments. That's how we prove it. In fact, look down a little bit later in this passage in verse 21. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Or in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 1 John 5.3 says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 2 John verse 6 says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. 
And so what we're learning in these passages here in John 15 and in 1 John and 2 John is that love is not just a feeling. It is also a function. If love never performs a God-honoring function, then the feeling is phony. You got to have feeling and you got to have function. Now, I saw this week on a headline that the 2020 Corvette just came out, and the base model is only $60,000. So I'm thinking about getting one. <laughs> no, nah, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to get one, but let's say I did. Let's say I did order one because I read about it a little bit this week. They actually deliver it to your house. So let's say I buy my dream car, a brand new Corvette, it's delivered to my house, and it's gorgeous. But then when I get into the car, even though everything looks gorgeous, the steering wheel, the seats, that smell, and then I go to crank up the car, and then I realize there's no engine under the hood. There's no motor in this car. Now, you would say, that's a beautiful car, and it had a great feeling when it was delivered to my house, but if it doesn't have a function, as in taking me somewhere, like really fast zero to 60 in less than three seconds, then you know what? Then that car is a fake. It's just a phony. It's got to have beauty and brains. It's got to have the look, and it's got to have the ability to accomplish what it promises to deliver. That's what love is. Real love is beautiful, and there's feeling involved. Sometimes there's not as much feeling involved, but I certainly don't want to err on the side of saying love is only duty because there is a delight that we understand in the affection that we have for our Savior. So I'm saying this, love has feeling and love has function. What Jesus is saying here is, like in that illustration with the Corvette, I need more than a pretty car. I need a car that drives. And I would say, you need more than a pretty faith. You need a faith that drives you somewhere, that takes you somewhere, a faith that works. And so love has feeling and function. It's like this. God tells us what love is in Romans 5, 8, when it says God demonstrates his love. He shows us his love for us in this, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's an action. Now, what if God said he loved us, but he never did anything for us? What if the Bible says God loves you, but there was no cross there was no Christ. There was no resurrection. Then we'd be like, well, show me the love. I mean, it's one thing to read it on paper, but it's another thing to know that that was a true event witnessed by over 500,000 of people saw the crucifixion, over 500 saw Jesus Christ resurrected. We know that it happened. It's not enough just to sing ballads all day to your woman. If you don't prove your love to her by treasuring her, preferring her, honoring her, serving her, then you may have a pretty voice, but you don't understand love. Ladies, you can say amen to that. All right? So the idea is, is that love is giving and love is service. And in this context, he's saying love is obedience. Love is keeping. Love, that's what love is. Love always does something. God so loved the world that he gave. And so Jesus is saying in this verse, John 14, 15, he's saying, I am doing my part, now you do yours. Jesus is saying, I'm about to sacrifice my life on the cross. Remember, 12 to 18 hours. Now you go and do the same. Jesus is saying, I am going to obey the Father's will, so you need to obey my will. And my will is that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
If, if love really is feeling plus function, then we can't really say, I love you, but we don't obey him. Do you know what that would make you? If you say, I love you, but I won't obey you, that makes you a hypocrite. If you say you love Christ, but you're not willing to follow him, then you are a fake. If you say you love Jesus, but you won't obey him, you're a phony. Love is feeling plus function. Now that we better understand what love is, the kind of love Jesus is talking about, let's ask a second question, your next blank, who is Jesus? Notice he says, if you love me, obviously a reference to himself, if you love me. I think the problem is that many people today don't really know who this me is. They don't know who Jesus is, just like many people don't know what love is. Many people don't really know who Jesus is. They think of Jesus as how they want to think of Jesus. They make him what they want him to be. They, they almost think of him as more of a created being than God. Even the Jews here in the first century thought of Jesus as less than Abraham, less than Moses, less than any of the prophets. The people today think of Jesus as a person who's all-inclusive, all-understanding, all-accepting of their own views and beliefs. And that's where lies the problem. Jesus is not to be conformed to our opinions or to our beliefs. We only have the option to accept Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture or not to accept him at all. You, you cannot have a Jesus of your own making. In fact, you're to be made in his image. You can't make him in yours. And so we've got to understand the Gospel of John is teaching us that robustly throughout the whole gospel. Jesus is God, John 1.1. Jesus made all things, John 1.3. Jesus is life, John 1.4. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, John 1.5. This is who Jesus is, right? Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us at the incarnation, John 1.14. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.18. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, John 1.33. Jesus is the Messiah, John 1.41. Jesus is something good that came out of Nazareth, John 1.46. I mean, Jesus is no ordinary man. Jesus turned water into wine, John 2. Jesus healed the royal official's son, John 4. Jesus healed the paralytic in John 5. Jesus fed 5,000 and walked on the water in John 6. Jesus healed the man born blind in John 9. Jesus raised his Lazarus from the dead in John 11. Listen to me, Jesus will not be defined by you. He tells us who he is, and then he shows us who he is. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door of the sheep. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the good shepherd. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the true vine. That's who he is. Accept him as he is this morning. Don't try to change him. If you love him, listen to him. Keep his commandments. And so when Jesus says, if you love me, let's be clear about who he is. Jesus is a loving God, but he also hates sin. Jesus is merciful, but he also confronts hypocrites. Jesus is kind, but he also made a whip and ran the unbelievers out of the temple. Jesus is sweet. But he is sovereign over all. Jesus is meek, but he's also mighty. Jesus is a forgiving savior, but he's also a fierce warrior. Jesus is wonderful, 
but he's also to be worshiped. Jesus is gentle, but he's also to be taken seriously, and he will not be trifled, and he will not be relegated to an inferior rank or position. Jesus is Lord over all. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And I'm tired of people just saying, oh, I just love Jesus. And then they go off and live their life however they want. And what Jesus is pleading in this passage is, if you really love me, know me for who I am, and then obey me. And so the third question I want to ask you is, what are we supposed to obey? He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Your next blank, what are Jesus's commandments? I mean, I know the Ten Commandments came out in Exodus chapter 20, but I thought that was God. I didn't know Jesus gave out commandments. What does he mean when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Well, you are to keep his commandments because that is the proof of your love for him. If you love Jesus, you will obey him. Remember, obedience is the hallmark of genuine saving faith and should be second nature for all truly born-again believers. In other words, we shouldn't be debating Should we keep the commandment? We should be just doing it. We shouldn't be making excuses. We should be exercising much effort to obey. We shouldn't minimize this principle. We should maximize it. We should understand this is the heart of the upper room discourse. If you love me, I want you to keep my commandments. Now, the word keep here means to persist in obedience. It means to persist in obedience. It means to observe, to fulfill, and to pay attention to. Part of the meaning of to keep here is that we are to keep watch over and even to keep on guard. Are you careful about how you keep God's commandments or have you become careless? Are you striving to follow the Lord's commands or are you straying out into the world? Are you living a life of conviction or of compromise? You say, Adam, well, which commandments are we to keep? Answer, all of those in the New Testament. Okay? The Old Covenant, which included the civil law and the ceremonial ordinances, dietary restrictions, clothing specifications, all of that in the Old Testament, part of what is called the Mosaic Covenant, all of that minus, I would say, the moral aspect, the moral law, is to be kept today. Maybe to say it another way, everything reiterated in the New Testament we keep, anything added, which is a lot more given in the New Testament as further revelation continues all the way to the end of Revelation, we're to keep it. We are New Covenant believers. We are not Old Covenant believers. We are believers in a New Covenant. That's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the Old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So what he's saying is the old covenant was good when Moses gave it, just like God intended. It was to keep a special ethnic quality and a special accountability for God's covenant people all the way until Christ. And then once Christ came... We are now transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant, and Hebrews says it's better. It's better because it's new, and it centers around Christ, which is why the author of Hebrews goes on to say, Hebrews 8.13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. 
So what I'm saying is, praise God, we don't have to have the same focus of dietary restrictions or of clothing specifications or ceremonial washings because now in the new covenant, when Jesus came, everything is about the heart. It's about the inside. Now, it was all about that even in the Old Testament, and yet they began to lose ground, getting too focused on externals and not enough focusing on the heart. In the New Testament, he just said, hey, forget all that stuff. That was a shadow to point you to Christ. That were, those were teaching uh, examples to now point you to the example who is Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus comes and says, look, I've got a new commandment I want to give you. And that commandment is that you love one another. Now, it wasn't brand new. It was in the Old Testament. But he's just putting special emphasis that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you are to love one another. But that's not the only commandment that Jesus gives He calls us to obey everything that he says in the New Testament. Basically, if Jesus gives an imperative, that's a command of Jesus. And if Jesus gives that imperative, do this, don't do that, then you're expected as a follower of him to obey whatever it is he says. And this week in my study, I found no less than 50 commands of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Can I just give them to you? You just listen. He says, you are to repent. He says, you are to follow me. You are to rejoice. You are to be the light of the world. You are to honor God's law. You are to avoid anger in your heart. You are to be reconciled to your brother. You are to not lust. You are to keep your word. You are to go to second mile. You are to love your enemies. You are to be perfect even as my heavenly father is perfect. You're to practice certain disciplines in secret like giving and praying and fasting. You're to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You're to seek first the kingdom of God. You're to judge not. You are to cast not your pearl before the swine. You are to ask, seek, and knock. You are to do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. You are to choose the narrow way. You are to be beware of false prophets. You are to pray for the laborers to be sent into the vineyard. You are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You are to fear not. You are to hear God's voice. You are to take up his yoke. You are to honor your parents. You're to beware of the leaven. You're to deny yourself. You are not to despise little children. You are to comfort others in their sin. You are to beware of covetousness. You are to forgive others. You're to honor marriage. You're to be a servant of all. You're to honor the house of prayer. You're to ask in faith. You're to help the poor. You're to pay taxes. You are to love the Lord with all your heart. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. You are to eagerly await for his return. You're to take the bread and the cup. You are to be born again. You are to keep Christ's commandments. You're to watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. You are to feed his sheep. You're to baptize Christ's disciples and you're to make disciples. And you are the last one to receive God's power. And there you have it. There's 50. You want to know what Jesus wants you to do? All 50, and there's probably more. That was just in my limited time, just saying, look at these imperatives of the New Testament. You are to do it with God's help. These 50 could certainly be summarized by the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The law of Christ is referenced in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So let me ask you this morning, Do you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Then you have to show it. If you love him, then you're called to obey him. Husbands, that means that you need to love your wife like 
Christ loved the church. Wives, that means that you are to respect and follow your husbands. Children, that means that you're to obey your mom and dad and to honor your parents. And listen to me, obedience is not easy. Obedience can be really hard. And keeping Christ's commandments, as I just read through a list of 50, can be daunting and even discouraging. And if you're trying to do it on your own, you will get depressed. You will fall down and you'll just cry. And you'll just say, I can't do it. Man, I thought the old covenant was hard, but now that I'm starting to see the new covenant, there is no way on earth that I can be responsible. I have this great responsibility to obey all of these commands. I can't do it, Lord. Well, that's why this sermon doesn't stop there this morning. But in verse 16 and 17, we're reminded that you don't have to do it alone. You have a great responsibility, but our second point this morning is, and you have a great helper. You have somebody who's going to help you, verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here's what we're talking about. Your next blank, you have a great helper. A, the Holy Spirit is requested by the Son. The Holy Spirit is requested by the Son, he says, and I will ask the Father. Now, let me just say that the intercessory work of Christ with Jesus petitioning the Father to give the Holy Spirit to the church begins right here. We think about Christ's intercession as John 17, and he prays about a bunch of stuff there, and it's awesome. But it really kind of begins right here where he says, you know, I'm going to ask the Father. You guys need some help. In this passage, we're seeing the triune God. Jesus is praying to the Father for him to give another helper. And aren't you glad that Jesus is calling out for help? I mean, Jesus is fully God and fully man who lived on this earth and walked among us, and he knew that we needed help. Who's here this morning? You say, Adam, I need some help. Jesus knew that. I mean, he was with the disciples for three and a half years. He had seen them at their worst. He had seen them argue about who would be the greatest. He had seen them doubt whether or not he could feed the 5,000. He had heard about how the disciples tried to keep the little children away from Jesus. He witnessed the fear of the disciples amidst the, the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had, he had been misunderstood a number of times. He had been questioned by Judas why wasn't this perfume sold and 300 denarii given to the poor? He was rebuked by Peter. Jesus knew that if the Father didn't send the Holy Spirit, that we would never make it. He's like, they're all doomed. You don't send the Holy Spirit down here to help these people out. They will never make it. Listen to me. We cannot keep Jesus' commands without Jesus' help. And Jesus' help is that he's requesting God the Father to send the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. What Jesus is to our salvation, the Holy Spirit is to our sanctification. Jesus came to save us from our sins, and then he's going to leave us and send another helper to sanctify us. Now, yes, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all at work in every part of our salvation and sanctification, 
And yet we see slight differences in emphasis between the ontological and economic trinity. The ontological trinity, or what some theologians call the imminent trinity, is the fact that God is three in one. The imminent trinity is referring to the trinity itself without regard to God's works and creation or redemption. It's just saying, hey, we have one God of one essence. That's ontological. But there's also the true aspect of the economic trinity. And when we speak of the economic trinity, we're dealing with the activity of God and the roles of the three persons with regard to creation and redemption. So God is one being, that's ontological, and yet God is three persons. That's economic emphasis on the three persons of the trinity at work. Now this is the first of several passages on the Holy Spirit in the Upper Room Discourse. And up to this point in John's Gospel, little has been said about the Holy Spirit. Maybe the only other reference to the Holy Spirit would have been when Nicodemus was learning about regeneration, and that's to be a work of the Spirit. But now Jesus, as he's preparing to go to the cross, he's encouraging his disciples, a great challenge, responsibility to love and keep his commandments, and now this great encouragement. He's praying for them that the Holy Spirit would now come and be with them forever. He's like, I'm about to leave, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will come and be with you forever. The presence of Christ on earth is departing, but the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is just beginning. And it must have been comforting for Jesus to say that he would ask the Father. You know, sometimes my kids may come to me or Lisa to ask us for something, and we can tell they're a little shy to ask us for their request, whether it's for dessert or popcorn with a movie or to take, us, take them to Magic Mountain, and we can see them scheming a little bit, which kid's going to ask which parent, because we want to get a yes here, if at all possible. <clears throat> but it's kind of nice to know when Jesus is like, I'll go make that request for you. Oh, you guys need help keeping my commandments? Let me go talk to the Father. Let me go speak to him because we know that Jesus carries out the Father's will perfectly. And we also know that every request that Jesus has ever made will be answered instantly, at least in heart. I mean, there was still the timing of the Pentecost and resurrection and all that. But we know the Father will answer this prayer. And so what's happening here is Jesus is just showing comfort. I'm going to make this request. I'll make this petition. And the disciples don't even know yet how good of a request this is going to be. They, they don't even know yet that, that with full understanding that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, that he's eternal, that he's underived and possessing all the attributes of personality, deity, and intellect. They don't fully understand that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. In fact, all of the divine attributes, the Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-substantial with the Father and the Son. It is also the work of the Holy Spirit to execute the divine will with relation to all mankind. The Holy Spirit was involved in the sovereign activity of creation, the incarnation, the written revelation of the Bible, and the work of salvation in the heart of man. Well, aren't you glad that Jesus had the wisdom and the insight to pray such an incredible prayer for his disciples? I mean, Jesus challenges his disciples to obey, and then he prays for them that God would send them a helper. Jesus demands perfection, and then he provides perfection. 
Jesus teaches what we ought to do, and then he equips us to do just that. Jesus tells us what to do, and then he comes to our aid to help us do it. I love this master. I love Christ. I'm so amazed at the holy calling that God has placed in our life at believe, as believers, but I'm also flooded with relief at the help that he provides. And so the Holy Spirit is requested by the Son, but the next blank says the Holy Spirit is given by the Father. He's given by the Father. You see there in the middle of verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, in this passage, the biggest surprise to me was studying these two words, another helper. So first of all, let me just say that the word helper in the original language is the word parakletos, which you may have heard before that the Holy Spirit is your paraclete. How many of you guys have heard that before? The Holy Spirit is our paraclete. No, I did not say parakeet, okay? Paraclete. He's my paraclete. It means he's my helper. The word comes from two Greek words, para, which means to come alongside, to be near, to be on the side of, and kaleo, which means to call or to invite. And if you put those two together, parakletos, it means to call beside or to invite to be near. This is one called alongside to help. The connotation of this word is that of a helper, comforter, counselor, exhorter, intercessor, encourager, and advocate on our behalf. The Holy Spirit fulfills all of these roles in our lives. And one of the most important things to realize is this word parakletos does not describe the Holy Spirit coming to comfort you and you do nothing. The idea, rather, is that's being described as the Holy Spirit is called to come alongside you to help you accomplish whatever it is that you're supposed to accomplish. So if you reduce the role of the Holy Spirit that all he does is comfort me like a warm blanket, you've missed it. Now, he does comfort us. And there are times of pain and heartache where we are numb, and he is our comfort. Okay, but the idea of this word is I'm going to come help you do what I've called you to do. I'm coming to be your helper. When you can't do it on your own, you need a helper. When you're weak, he strengthens you. When you're lazy, he exhorts you. When you need prayer, he intercedes for you. When you need direction, he counsels you. And I believe that the work of the Holy Spirit in this age began at Pentecost when he came from the Father as promised by Christ. And Jesus says it this way in John 15, 26, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. In other words, Jesus is promising that after the resurrection, he is sending this helper to come from the Father. There will be, in this helper, he will be the Spirit of truth. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you about him now, and when he comes, he's going to tell you about me later. I'm telling you about him now, and when he comes, he will remind you of everything I've said to you, and he'll empower you and equip you. The Holy Spirit will come to initiate and to complete the building of the body of Christ, which is the church, and he does this by regenerating us and then empowering us with spiritual gifts which function to edify the body of Christ. 
In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 through 13 says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who appoints to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Just a beautiful passage about, again, the Spirit's work of empowering us and gifting us. The broad scope of the Holy Spirit's divine activity includes convicting the world of sin. It includes uh, of judge, uh, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. It includes glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ and transforming believers into the image of Christ. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is the supernatural and sovereign agent in regeneration, baptizing all believers into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit also indwells, sanctifies, instructs, empowers believers for service, and seals us for the day of redemption. Now check this out. As I was studying this this week, I told you the most surprising thing was just a little deep dive on another helper. Another helper. And as I was reading R.C. Sproul's commentary this week, he says that he loved to ask his uh, students questions in theology class. And so he would ask them this question when he'd come to this topic, who is the paraclete in Scripture? To which his theological students would almost always confidently answer, the Holy Spirit. To which R.C. Sproul would then cleverly reply, then why does Jesus say another helper? We know that the Holy Spirit is a helper, but get this, he's not your first helper. Jesus is praying that he would send another helper, meaning there's already one helper, and now he's going to add on that extra help. And so who is the first helper? Get this, the first helper is Jesus. Turn with me in your Bible, if you will, to 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2, so you can see it with your own eyes here. If you've only thought that the paraclete is a reference to the Holy Spirit, then you're wrong. Because he's saying, I'm praying for another paraclete. The first paraclete, we could say, is the Lord Jesus Christ, based on 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, that's the word Paraclete or Paracletos, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Your first Paracletos, your first Paraclete, your first advocate is the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, we are called as children of God to obey the Father. And we are challenged to live a life without sin. And yet we know that no matter how hard we strive, that is utterly impossible. And so whatever shall become of us, well, we have an advocate. A what? We have an advocate. Same word here, parakletos, not the Holy Spirit, but this time it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. He died in my place. He is my substitute. He carried my sin debt to the cross. He gave up his life. He came to my side in the courtroom of God, and though I was guilty as charged, he said, I'm innocent under the blood. He's my helper. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, he did what no one else could do. He lifted me. Love lifted me. Praise Jesus forevermore when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. I don't have one helper. I have two. The first paraclete was Jesus. The second paraclete is the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus says he will give you another helper. Get this. The word another is the word alos, A-double-L-O-S, which means another of the same kind. He could have used the word heteros, which, as you know, means of a different kind. Hetero, different, but he didn't. He used alos, of the same kind, the same kind, the same essence, the same divine attributes, the same power, the same purpose, the same ability, because both are of the same Godhead. So we have two helpers, or do we have three? Turn with me to Psalm 54. Psalm 54, verse 4, lo and behold... We see the word helper also used in the Old Testament referring to God the Father. Psalm 54.4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Look at Psalm 121. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Listen to Isaiah 50, verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. We have three helpers. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. By the way, never think of the word helper as inferior. Sometimes we think of a helper as like, oh, that's just my assistant. Or can you help me get this done? I mean, I'm the main one here, but I just need a little bit of help. No, no, no. The Lord is a very present help in times of trouble. Jesus is our advocate. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. He's our encourager. He's our counselor. He's our helper. Like, we can't do it without him. So the Holy Spirit is requested by the Son The Holy Spirit is given by the Father. And then last we see, your last blank, the Holy Spirit abides in you. I'll have to take some time next time we get together to explain that a little further, how it is that the Holy Spirit abides in you. He dwells in you. Turn with me to that take-home section, if you will. Just a couple things to think about. Number one, how does the fact that love is both a feeling and a function play out in your life. You should think about that this week. If I, if I love him, I obey him. So how does that fact that love is both a feeling and a function, what does that look like in your life? Or the second question, how do you balance the fact that you have a great responsibility to keep Christ's commands with the fact that you have a great helper to assist you? Are you responsible? Yes. Do you have a helper? You betcha. You have the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, and yet we see he's another helper because Jesus is the first. And if we could dig back even further, we see that God is our ultimate help. This morning, I want you to be encouraged, church. You have a great responsibility to keep the word of God, to obey Christ's commands, but you also have a great helper in the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you. Be encouraged this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for 
these incredible truths that we can look at together this morning in John 14. Forgive us sometimes for maybe not really understanding what it means when Jesus prayed for another helper. Help us to come to understand that even deeper and even greater. God, we want to balance that responsibility that you lay on our shoulders, and yet at the same time, you give us great help that we would never act alone or work alone or try to obey alone. We depend on your grace. We depend on the Holy Spirit. We're asking for power. We're asking for encouragement. We're asking for comfort. We're asking for counsel. We're asking that that Holy Spirit that was given to the church that lives inside of every believer would have his way in us. Thank you that he dwells in us, that he abides in us, that he remains in us. And so help us as a church to be lifted up this morning, to have a high and holy calling, but also to have a high and holy helper in our paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Minister these truths to our heart this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.